Morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. We're going to be continuing in our series through the book of Genesis, and this morning we're going to look at chapter 17. So if you're, um, if you got a Bible with you, turn to Genesis 17. If you don't have one, there's a Bible in the pew, and you can find Genesis 17 on page 11. Um, but actually, we're going to start in Judges. You don't have to turn there, okay? But I want you to think about the intersection of Gideon and Advent. That might sound like totally out of left field, okay? But this morning, today, is the first Sunday of Advent, right? Four Sundays leading up to Christmas. So, story of Gideon, angel of the Lord meets him in a wine press. People um, were being oppressed by the Midianites, and Gideon is hiding his wheat from them because they would just come and take everything that, you know, all the crops and leave them destitute. So he's beating his wheat in a wine press, like hiding from the enemy. The angel shows up and says, greetings, mighty warrior. And he's like, you know, who are you talking to? You're not talking to me because he was weak and fearful. But what happened was, as we see the life of Gideon, he became what God said he was. Not because he was already that, but because God's word was powerful, God's grace was powerful to make him what God said he was. So that word that came into the wine press, that came into the midst of the darkness of the oppression of the Midianites, caused hope to rise. It didn't come all at once, you know. He, he needed to get kind of cajoled into tearing down the idols. He did it at night. But okay, that's a good step in the right direction. And then he had to do that whole fleece thing, you know, because he still wasn't sure. But eventually, God delivered in a mighty way, mighty warrior, 300 against a horde, Right? Not because Gideon was awesome, but because God is awesome, because God is mighty, and he can use weak, helpless people to do his work. So the word of God came into that situation, and hope began to rise, expectation that God was going to deliver. That's exactly what Advent is all about, right? All these prophecies of the Messiah that's going to come and deliver us we are waiting. We are hoping. Where we stand in history, we can look back and say, he did it. But we actually still are waiting. We're waiting for everything to be made new. We're waiting. I mean, we are walking through the valley of tears. This world is full of frustration and pain and suffering. And so even though hope has come, we still have this living hope that won't be fully realized until Jesus comes again. So we are awaiting the second advent. And so this passage, oddly enough, it's all about circumcision. <laughs> Genesis 17 is very appropriate to advent, and it's intended for our hope to rise. So going through this series in Genesis it's a book of beginnings. That's what the word means. Last week, Genesis 16, 
you know, there's all this promise given to Abram and Sarai that they're going to be the father and mother of, of many peoples, all these descendants, and they're like, well, not sure what God's doing. He's not answering these prayer or answering these promises, fulfilling these promises yet. Maybe we're supposed to do something about it. So they take matters into their own hands. And Sarai says, here's my Egyptian servant, Hagar. Why don't you take her as your wife? Go in and sleep with her and raise up children for me. And Ishmael is born. So in response to that kind of take matters into your own hands unbelief, how's God going to respond? Well, once again, amazingly, here in chapter 17, we see the mercy of God and his stubbornness. God's stubborn covenantal love, love that is more stubborn than Abram and Sarai's stubborn sin. Okay, so let's dive in here and see the confirmation of the covenant beginning in verse 1. All right. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So first off, it's always good to ask of any text, if you're reading the Bible, what does this passage reveal about God? And here, this is the first time that the divine name God Almighty or El Shaddai is used. So if you set that over against chapter 16, which is where Abram and Sarai took matters into their own hands, they need to hear that it's God Almighty they're dealing with. They don't have to take matters into their own hands. They can trust him. He can do anything. And he's made this covenant, and he will keep those promises to them. They don't have to figure out ways to make it happen. He can do great things for them. But these first two verses kind of raise a question. I don't know if you've ever asked it before, but why is God talking about making a covenant with Abram. Didn't he already do that? Look at chapter 15, verse 18. Tyler covered this a couple weeks ago. 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I'll give this land, etc., etc. So is this a second covenant? No, it's a reaffirmation or a confirmation of the covenant. In fact, several translations translate the verb there in 17.2 as establish or confirm. It's a different verb than the one in Genesis 15 where the Lord cuts a covenant, uh, makes a covenant there. In fact, this verb in, in chapter 17 is usually translated as give, to give a covenant. <laughs> so it's this reinforcement of the fact that this is not some 50-50 contract, you know, Abram, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. No, it's a gift from God. God established it unilaterally in chapter 15. Remember, he alone is the one walking through the pieces in this covenantal um, ritual. And then even in 17.7, it's reiterated even more clearly. I will establish or confirm my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So by reaffirming the covenant here, we could say that God is reinforcing his trustworthiness and the reliability of his promises. I mean, this is, this is the character of God. This is the nature of God. How kind of him to 
just underline it, boldface it. He's heaping promise upon promise. That's his character. That's how he is. He's adamant about giving Abram and Sarai every reason to trust him. And it's not like he used to be that way, and now with us, he likes to cause us to wander in the dark. No, that's his character with us too. He heaps promise upon promise because he wants us to be sure of him. We don't have to freak out in anxiety and take matters into our own hands. We don't have to fear. We can trust that he is with us and for us, and he will make good on his promises. So if we, if we zoom out a little bit, <clears throat> do you see what's going on here? Do you see who the hero is in Genesis? It's not Abram. Just think about the unfolding of the story. Abram is this moon worshiper in Babylonian territory, and God calls him out, makes promises to him. He believes them, but then he pawns his wife off. You know, hey, tell him you're my sister to save his own skin. God intervenes and rescues. And Abraham displays some faith with Lot and the land choice. And then Lot is kidnapped and he goes after and, you know, is victorious over the kings that had, had uh, kidnapped Lot. God makes these amazing promises in chapter 15. And then what happens again? Boom, we're down in the <clears throat> pit, this kind of circus thing that's going on between uh, Abram and Sarai and Hagar. Again, God intervenes shows himself to be the God who sees and knows and intervenes despite their unfaithfulness. So do you see the big picture? From him and through him and to him are all things. God is the faithful covenant God. His covenantal commitment is greater than our sin. In fact, I didn't know this before this week, but this was interesting. In the uh, IVP Bible Background Dictionary, it says this, There are no parallels in the ancient world to covenants between deity and um, people. Even though certain gods were known to make demands and promise favorable treatment, in most of these cases, kings report their care of the sanctuaries of the god and then tell how the deity responded with blessing. Like, you do this for me, I'll do that for you. But these fall far short of a covenant relationship initiated by a deity for his own purposes. So our God, the only true and living God, is a God of grace. And he willingly enters into this relationship. So um, some years ago, Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace, and he recounts this story. Maybe some of you have heard it um, it's about C.S. Lewis. So during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation, other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Resurrection, again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about, he asked, and heard in reply that his colleagues we're discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. They discussed it for a while and, and had to agree, which probably wouldn't happen today, but anyway. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seemed to go against every, 
every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, and the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love absolutely free. So by grace, through faith, from beginning, Genesis, to end. And as we look at Genesis 17 here, we're going to see that there's lots of signposts scattered in the chapter. They're like neon signs, in fact, pointing to this amazing covenantal love and faithfulness of God for his people. So the first few are found in the names in this chapter. Okay, so point number two, let's read the signs. First, we're looking at some names. So the first one is Abram to Abraham. Okay, look at verse three. Abram fell on his face, this sign of deep reverence, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So his name change is, is a sign of this covenant promise. Abram means exalted father, you know, pro- probably speaking of his lineage, his noble lineage. But that lineage was in a pagan context where he was born and raised. Abraham means father of a multitude. So the focus is not on natural lineage, but forward to supernatural legacy. So this, his name is actually a nutshell of this whole chapter and what it's all about. Summary of the covenant. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I think that's hard for us to understand the weight of that, but this is huge. A dynasty is in the making here. Verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. So the covenant is going to be signified not just in Abram, but in his offspring as well. Throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Not just giving gifts, not just giving land and and descendants, but giving himself the greatest gift. God will be their God and he will be their people. Now, think about it. Um... Now everybody's going to call this guy by his new covenant name. Good morning, Father of a Multitude. How are you doing today there, Father of a Multitude? So how does that hit Abraham's ears? We'll come back to that in, in, a, in a minute. But think about it. That there's, there's something being stated every time his name is mentioned. Um, but we need to see the other names here before we recognize the significance of it. Okay? So Sarai to Sarah, verse 15. Look down there. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Now, granted, she's 90. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So, actually, Sarai and Sarah both mean princess. But her name change is still a significant statement. It's fitting that this promise of future kings coming from her 
is given to the woman whose name means princess. So princesses beget future kings. So the blessing that God promises is going to come through this royal line, and kings are going to come from her, not from Hagar, but from her. So a miracle child is being promised here, which leads us to the third name, Isaac. So when Abram hears that kings are going to come through Sarah, he, he laughs. You know, he's, he's still face down <laughs> like he was in verse 7. Or I'm sorry, verse 3. Here's verse 17. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So he's on his face in reverence, but this is like pushing the boundaries of credulity, you know? So he suggests Ishmael. I don't know if he's just tired, you know, and I can't handle a toddler right now, you know? I, I don't know if that's... Who knows what it was? Okay, half of you are asleep. But anyway, um, 99, and he's going to have a child. So verse 19, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. You know what the name Isaac means? Laughter. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, God hears, that's his name, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So Abraham laughs. In the next chapter, Sarah laughs when she hears this promise. But God gets the last laugh because he's going to make good on this miracle baby And that miracle baby's name is going to be a constant reminder of God's ability to do anything. He's the almighty God, this miraculous covenant of promise. He can do it. He can handle it. He can take care of that. The promises cannot be fulfilled by human means. In fact, God waits until they're 99 and 90 so that nobody will get the idea that it was done by them. So, God does all this naming. And in the ancient Near East, naming was a function of authority or lordship even. And a new name carried, or a name in the first place, carried the sense of status, character, destiny. Okay? So, for instance, remember Joseph in Acts becomes Barnabas? because he was such an encourager. We just know him as Barnabas, but do you know his real name was Joseph? Barnabas, son of encouragement. So his name was because of his character. So Abraham and Sarah, this new people is going to be created, a new miracle people, people belonging to God. So it's fitting that they get these new names. It's the beginning of a new era. So you can imagine... Abraham, after this encounter, he goes back and some of the people in his clan start calling him Abram. He's like, okay, no, my new name is Abraham. Um, Doesn't that mean father of multitudes? Your wife is barren. No, no, no. Almighty God said that the princess and I are going to have a son and kings are going to come. 
I mean, you just, just tease this thing out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. What was in his goat's milk, you know? Like, at 99 or 90 and 100. So, sure, a- Abraham. Okay. Now, listen. Here, here's what I'm getting at here. Were these names given to mock Abram and Sarai's pain? No. Were they given so that they would be mocked by their neighbors? No, that might have happened. They were actually given to bolster hope, just like greetings, mighty warrior. And God made good on the promise. So Abraham, named by God, is the father of a multitude, even though it hasn't happened yet, which means he is a man in covenant with God, the almighty God, the living God who makes outlandish promises to him. His is the miracle-working God. You see how identity is all over this? This is who he is, who he will be. And he can grow into that in the school of faith, just like Gideon grew into mighty warrior by God's grace. And his name and Sarah's name and Isaac's name are these constant reminders of God's promise and covenant. Hope is rising. Now, there's a sense in which Abraham and Sarah hold a unique place in salvation history. We can't make this one-to-one correlation to our lives in every way, for sure. But this idea of a new name for those in covenant relationship with God is not limited to just Abraham and Sarah. Instead, they're actually the first to enjoy this change of status and character and destiny that results from God's renaming grace, okay? Turn to Isaiah 62 so you can see that this is for all of God's people. This is just one example. So speaking of the redeemed people of God, what God is going to do in redeeming, delivering, recreating them, in a sense, after their rebellion. Look at verse 2, Isaiah 62, 2. It's on page 621 in the Pew Bible if you're using that. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. That's your name, people of God, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Do you always feel like that's true? Do you you just wake up in the morning just so secure and thrilled and happy because you know that you are a crown of beauty in the hand of God? 
Like your identity is so secure because you are a son or daughter of the king of kings. You feel so loved by God. Your name isn't forsaken. It's married. Jesus laid down his life for his bride. Is that how you wake up in the morning? Anybody? No, for me. Instead, you anxious and do you start to scramble to make it happen? So do you see these promised names spoken over us? They're not meant to mock us. They're meant to give us hope that we are already people of God and God's going to actually make good on all these promises. First Peter 2 says the same thing. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So again, today is the beginning of Advent, the season of hope and anticipation of awaiting the coming of the Savior and our King. And Advent candles, you know, pretty common tradition, lots of places which symbolize the hope, you know, into the darkness, the light breaks in. So if this room was completely dark and I struck a match and lit a candle, you'd probably be relieved because hope would rise that you could make it out of this room without, you know, smashing your shin on something solid. So these promises, these, this gracious renaming is intended to like, give us hope that God is with us and he is for us. We don't have to freak out and take matters into our own hands. And you know what? Another way that sometimes God causes hope to rise is not just striking the match and lighting, you know, a candle in the sense of here's the name, here's who you are. Sometimes he does it by blowing out one. Blowing out a light that we've lit. So Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, wrote this famous little parable that makes a pretty good point. When the prosperous man on a dark but starlit night drives comfortably in his carriage and has the lanterns lighted, aye, then he is safe. He fears no difficulty. He carries his light with him, and it is not dark close around him. But precisely because he has the lanterns lighted, and has a strong light close to him, precisely for this reason, he cannot see the stars. For his lights obscure the stars, which the poor peasant driving without lights can see gloriously in the dark but starry night. So those deceived ones live in the temporal existence, either occupied with the necessities of life, they are too busy to avail themselves of the view, or in their prosperity and good days, they have, as it were, lanterns lighted, and close about them, everything is so satisfactory, so pleasant, so comfortable, but the view is lacking, the prospect, the view of the stars. So listen, think about this in relation to Abraham and Sarai. Prior to chapter six, 17, Hagar, that whole deal, the birth, birth of Ishmael, that was them trying to light their own light, light their own lamp in hopes of fulfilling the promise on their own. 
And God just let time pass. And in a sense, he's blowing out the light, saying, I've got something much better for you than what you can manufacture on your own. And, and Abraham even tries to relight it here. Oh, that Ishmael would walk before you. Would you stop? I'm blowing out your little lantern so that you can see my glory in the stars. Like I'm going to make your, your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. So they were happy with the carriage lights. God wanted to show them the glory in his sky. So he blows that out and shows his glory in the promise of Isaac. So do you see how this is, like, this is us. This is one story. Like, we can so easily feel like the promises of God are too far off. Like, they feel too unreal. Have you ever been under pressure financially or just anxious and somebody says something like reminding you of Matthew 6, your father's care? And it's like, but I've got a mortgage to pay off. Like, I've got a mortgage bill due next, next week. God's promises to take care of us, they just seem impractical, you know? And your anxious scrambling feels more, like, effective. And we turn away and try to build our own identity, security, safety somewhere else. We can do this pretty easily. Rather than our identity being in what God says about us, we try to establish it in our jobs, our successes. We tie it with our children, with our stuff, with our competencies. But God loves us too much to establish our identity on such shaky foundation, and he'll just blow out the lamps sometimes so that our life is based on grace not our striving. And all of it is intended to give us hope because he's with us, he's for us, he's going to make good on all his promises. So those are some of the signs here in this chapter that um, this covenant is by grace. God's faithfulness, his mercy is all over it. So the names, we can read the name changes and see the signs, what they signify about God's character and the nature of this covenant. The other sign is circumcision, okay? So, verse 9. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Down to the end of verse 13. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. What in the world? Have you ever just stopped like, and thought about this? Like, why did we choose this one? So circumcision existed before the Bible. It was pretty common in the ancient Near East. But God gives it a whole new significance here, kind of like the cross. Lots of criminals died on Roman crosses. But when Jesus died on one, it took on a whole new significance. So again, circumcision, it's weird, it's painful, it's bloody, it's not even medically necessary, it's certainly not the stuff of polite conversation, right? 
Like, have you ever read this and wondered, like, why in the world? I mean, if you read this and have to explain it to your child when they ask, you know what I'm talking about. If you, if you invited your friend to church and they showed up on the Sunday when they read about circumcision, you know what I'm talking about, okay? It's just like, what in the world? Well, what was the promise? What's at the heart of the promise? Here in Genesis 16, what's at the heart of the promise? The promise of? Of? Say it, somebody. What's God promising? Abram, or Abraham and Sarah. Children, there we go. What do you need to do to have children? You don't have to answer that one, okay? <laughs> but this is not just any children. This is not just any offspring. This is not something that's just a matter of Abram having sex with his wife or with her servant girl. The act itself wasn't going to bring about the heir. This was a child promised, a child of promise. So the new people was to be birthed in faith by God's miraculous promise. So the child would be a child of promise, not something Abraham could do. So the sign signifies the covenant. So everybody that takes this sign of circumcision, the point of it is that you would say that we are going to live and, and multiply in such a way that we are a people who trust God. We don't take matters in our own hands. Because the covenant was a covenant of trust. It's the opposite of what they did in chapter 16 with Hagar and Ishmael. So this sign is signifying that those who take this on themselves are saying, we are a miracle people. We don't take matters in our own hands. We trust in the Lord with all of our heart. The covenant is a matter of trust. So, will future generations trust the God of promise or would they take matters into their own hands? If you refuse the covenant sign, you're going public with your unbelief and so you must be cut off from the people of God because you've already chosen to live outside the covenant. Okay, so you can see how the practice so quickly starts to take on metaphorical meaning, right? So Deuteronomy 30, as early as Deuteronomy 30, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So the sign without the substance, you can have the sign but not have the faith that it's supposed to signify. You could be circumcised in your flesh but not have the faith that the circumcision was to be a symbol of. And so Paul in the New Testament, Romans 2, says no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. So our lineage is not what we need to get into the new covenant of Christ. We need a new miraculous birth, which is why circumcision of the heart is a way to talk about the new birth in the New Testament. So, for instance, in Colossians, 
In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's a spiritual thing. Cutting away the deadness of our, our stony hearts. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead and raised you from the dead spiritually. You were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So, with all that firmly in place as far as the fact that this covenant is established by God, it's a miracle covenant. It's a covenant of promise. It's primarily about His activity. That doesn't mean we just sit on our hands. It does mean we must trust and obey. So point number three, quorum, deo, and tamim. So look again at verse 1. See how God addresses Abram here. When Abram is 99, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So this walking before God language we've heard already with Enoch. Remember, he walked with God back in chapter 5. It's a way of describing the life of faith. And the church down through the ages had a phrase that captures this walking by faith, all of life, before God, quorum Deo, in the presence of God or before the face of God. That's what God is calling Abraham to do. And this is our calling as well, to live all of life before the face of God. Like open, in light, walking in the light, not hiding anything, not compartmentalized, not trying to, well, you can have these things, but not these things, having closets, you know, just don't go in there, Lord. You can, you, you can be the Lord of this much, but not that. All of life before the face of God, which goes hand in glove with this next term. He says, be blameless. Tamim in Hebrew, which is forever emblazoned on my mind from seminary where my professor, Willem van Gemmeren, we were looking at Psalm 119.1 which says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, same word, who walk in the law of the Lord. And he said, he's got this like, I think he's from the Netherlands or something. What does tamim? You know, I can't reproduce. It's been a while. Anyway, he says, what does tamim? And he says, an apple is an apple is an apple. Okay, what are you talking about? So any way you cut an apple, what do you get? You get an apple. So it's a, a term of integrity and wholeness. So to be blameless is not to be sinlessly perfect. To be blameless is to be the real deal all the way through. Walk before me, all of life before the face of God, and be whole, a person of integrity, a Christian in every category, every nook and cranny of life. So if, if somebody jumped into your life at whatever time of day, whatever context, what would they find there? Not a perfect person, but they'd find a Christian. Not you live this way, you talk this way on Sunday, you live some other way, talk some other way during the week. You do your work the same way you do everything else. By grace through faith. So is there any portion of life for us that we're unwilling to yield to the lordship of Christ where we just 
are ashamed of it. We just are hiding it in a closet or whatever. We're afraid to get out into the light and be people of integrity. We need to be tamim, whole, integrated, where all of life we're seeking to learn this life of faith to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, not lean on our understanding in every nook and cranny of life. So if you are alive to God, dead to your sin, your old way of life, then you want to live all of life, quorum Deo, before the face of God. We want to be people of integrity. We wouldn't be afraid. I mean, you might see something in my life if you jumped in at a certain time, but I'm going to be sorry for my sin. I'm not going to hide or shift or lie about, you know what, you're right. I need to grow in that regard. I'm going to repent and seek grace for it. Because even that is what a real Christian does. Repent. So, as we approach the table here, we've talked about the covenantal relationship that God established with Abraham and Sarah, these new names that he gave them, the new status, new identity, new destiny. And there's these signposts, circumcision being one of them. Isn't it ironic that circumcision, by the time that Jesus came around, it became an external boundary marker of who was in and who was out? So what was circumcision intended to be? It was a sign that the covenant people would always be by promise and not by human means seeking to be right with God. That's the opposite. Like these people were saying, well, you got to do this, you got to keep kosher, you got to be circumcised in order to be righteous with God. And they were neglecting the heart, the, the very opposite of what the covenant was supposed to signify. The sign without the substance is worthless. Just like if you're not trusting in Jesus, don't, don't eat a cracker and drink some juice. That doesn't make you a Christian. Trusting in Jesus is what makes you a Christian. And then this is a sign, a reminder of all that is yours in Christ. And we eat and drink the grace, the promises of God Reminding ourselves and being strengthened by that grace. So, make sure that the Lord's table is not an empty ritual. It's the faith underlying the participation in this sign right here that really matters. So let's examine our hearts as we approach the table and be assured that we're not eating in an unworthy manner. Circumcision of the heart is what is at the heart of the covenant, both the old covenant and the new covenant, this being the new covenant in the blood and broken body of our Lord. So if the men who are going to be serving can come forward here, this table is the sign of the new covenant. Its participation in this table is sign of participation in the new covenant. And like I said, the table's not going to do you any good if you're not trusting in Jesus. So if you're not a Christian or if you're realizing, you know what, I, I'm going through the motions, just let the elements pass and do business with Jesus in, in your seat there. 
say, I, I want to really trust in you. I don't want to just have these external things, you know, trying to be in by means of coming to church and doing some rituals. But for the rest of us, if you're in Christ, we come to the table. Let's eat and drink in faith, examining ourselves to see if we're being faithful to the covenant, walking quorum Deo before the face of God, not hiding anything. Just bring it out into the light. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness so that we can walk before God with integrity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this revelation of your character. You are so merciful and kind. You are the maker and the keeper of your covenants. And we thank you for the blood of Jesus and the broken body of Jesus that makes it possible for us to be in the new covenant in your blood. And we want to proclaim that covenant until the second advent. And so, Father, I pray that your promises, your grace, your mercy would cause hope to rise this morning where we may be discouraged and depressed, having lost sight of who you are and what you promised to do for us, and even who you've said we are. Would you remind us of who we are in Christ? Feed us on your grace and cause hope to rise, security to be felt, security in your love, your grace. And I pray that we would be a people that walks openly in the light before you in integrity, reflecting your grace and displaying your glory and pointing others to our great, merciful, loving covenant God. In Jesus' name, amen.